Hello, and welcome to another edition of Open Floor. I'm Ben Golliver, not Andrew Sharp. Andrew's out for this episode, but I've got a great guest, Lee Jenkins. He's going to break down everything you need to know about Ben Simmons. You guys surely saw his big uh, SI Magazine feature uh, on the uh, Sixers rookie point guard sensation. Uh, we go deep into all aspects, the LeBron comparisons, his development, what's up with his shot, uh, what he thinks about the one and done rule, all that good stuff. After that conversation, we dig into uh, some LeBron and Cavs and you know LeBron 2018 free agency talk, just kind of update where things stand on that front. And then we dig into the Thunder as well. You guys will remember he did a big piece on Paul George last summer. Uh, so we take the temperature of OKC. Are they edging towards potentially making moves at the trade deadline? We'll see what Lee has to say about that. And without further ado, here's my interview with uh, SI senior writer, Lee Jenkins. Hey, Lee, how's it going, man? It's good. I'm feeling a little too much pressure, though. Uh-oh. Why is that? I don't know. It's, last time Sharp was on, you just kind of eviscerated him for the last 15 minutes. Uh-oh. I'm sort of like, I'm ready for my, <laughs> my Oklahoma City Thunder evisceration or something. I need to, I'm just ready for my like Ben Golliver comeuppance. Look, I have, to, I have to get all that out of my system with Andrew. You know I'm nothing but polite to you. And I actually want to dig in re- really deep to your Ben Simmons story because Andrew and I, we've had our funny debates. You know, he didn't love Simmons as a prospect coming in and, and he quickly came around to him. I was kind of enamored uh, with Simmons from the start, but I certainly did not see what his rookie year has become uh, right out of the gate. And you did this, you know, big time feature story on him basically less than two months into his rookie season. Uh, I just have a couple questions off the top. Uh, first, how rare is it for you to get a player that early in his career and give him that full feature treatment? I mean, I can't, you know, you're always profiling guys, but I feel like you're, you're in really early on Simmons. Is that right? Yeah. I remember doing that with Kyrie also. It was about the same time and Porzingis was pretty early. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a mixed blessing when you go in that early on some guys. Like one thing I like about it is, you're telling their story, if not for the first time, you know, you're one of the first people to tell their story. So you can kind of get into their origin story a little bit more, you know, so many NBA players, it's like, you know, by years three and four, people really, they know so much about them. So it's fun to do it early for that reason. The reason it's, it's a little more challenging is, and this is especially true for somebody like Simmons, they're just not really ready to reflect yet. And I don't know if it's that they haven't had enough life experience or that, you know, they don't feel comfortable with it or, uh, you know, that they're still kind of learning a little bit of, you know, just how to have that kind of conversation with a reporter. So, you know, the interview can be a little more challenging. And, and there are so many young players in the league. I mean, Lonzo's like this too, where, you know, they're a little bit reticent. Um, you know, the interviews aren't necessarily as easy. But I found Simmons to be really smart, um, even though he's quiet, extremely confident. Um, and I think, you know, I think some teammates don't really even fully know who he is yet. I think last year, you know, the Sixers have all these guys on these red shirt programs and everything. And I think it sets up kind of a strange dynamic where you get to know your coaches really well. And I think there's some benefits to it, but you don't necessarily know your teammates all that well. I think that's something where, you know, like I was talking to some new Sixers who were saying that like they were trying to get intel on Simmons 
over the summer, like guys who didn't even, and they were calling around trying to like get a sense of what he was like. And I don't think people got a, got a full sense of that last year. I think he was uh, pretty far removed from kind of just the day to day of the team. Well, totally. I think everybody fell victim to him just falling off the map. I think at one point you called him like part phenom, part phantom. I mean, that's really what it was. I mean, he kind of disappeared and everyone was trying to sort of figure him out. I'm glad you mentioned his personality because there's such a clear contrast that I see kind of developing between, you know, Joel Embiid. He'll go on NBA TV, call himself the the best center in the NBA, and he's the James Harden of centers. And then, you know, you, I'm digging through your story with Simmons here, and I'm not sure if he said one nice thing about himself the whole way. And you know, he was kind of complimenting. I think it was LeBron and talking about how he had learned from LeBron that you know part of greatness is making your teammates great, which is. Uh, a fantastic thought, but not a, exactly what we would expect from, you know, a young emerging superstar kind of, you know, chest thumping like Embiid would. I mean, can you see that same contrast between Philly's uh, centerpieces here in terms of their personalities? Is, is Or is that too lazy? Is that too uh, me jumping the gun? No, it is a stark contrast. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out, to see if Simmons kind of comes out of his shell more, to see if you know, Embiid maybe dials that back or how those guys coexist. Because, you know, I don't know that they're ever going to be best friends or anything like that. I I don't know that they'll have enough in common. Um, But just seeing how that kind of relationship unfolds, you know, that's that's part of the interesting thing. There was a weird moment, Ben, when I was doing that story. Uh, They were shooting around. Um, Of course, Brett Brown used to be with the Spurs. Spurs, have a, when they're in L.A., or at least they used to do this all the time, they would do their shoot-arounds and practices on off days at Santa Monica High, and they would stay at Casa del Mar, Casa del Mar's hotel, you know, beautiful hotel in Santa Monica right by the water. And it's kind of crazy to take the bus back and forth from the high school to them. I mean, it's so close, and it's usually beautiful weather. So after the Spurs, because the Spurs did that, of course, Sam Presti with the Thunder, they did the same thing. They would stay at the Casa del Mar. They would shoot around in Santa Monica. And in the early days of like the Thunder, when they were going, the guys would always walk back. And I always kind of loved watching the sight of like Durant walking down Pico and they'd all be in their sweats (laughs) together and, you know, and Westbrook. And so seeing, so the Sixers were doing the same walk um, after shoot arounds, it would be like Embiid and you know, all of his guys, Simmons, I think, took the bus. But it's sort of just watching them sort of walking reminded me of of the thunder and of the challenges you face when you have these, like when you're trying to put together the young super team, right? So guys who haven't necessarily, what does Popovich say, get, get over yourself, like who haven't necessarily got over themselves yet. And the challenges that come with that, it's different. When you put that together and guys are older, I think, you know, it's just like what I was saying about the interviews. They're just in a different place. They're, you know, they've kind of already established themselves. They don't maybe necessarily care quite as much about the numbers and the all-star berths. And so Philly's trying to do this with these young and very talented guys. And, you know, that's a whole other kind of challenge. That's a whole other kind of process that I'm sure Brett Brown will have to deal with in the next couple of years. Hey, one more thing on Simmons' personality. You have a scene in the story where he's sort of, I think, talking to his friends or associates, and he's he asks them, like, what's the weirdest thing about watching me from a, a specific game? I guess a reviewing tape. And I think you were trying to hint that, like, he wanted maybe some positive reaffirmation about how well he had played maybe from his friends, but he was, like, too shy to ask for it. Was that where you were going with that? Or, or walk us through that scene. I thought it was kind of a cool way to – you know, to sort of fish for a compliment without saying, 
like what's the best thing about what was the best thing I did tonight or you know what was the, <laughs> my best highlight or what's the cool it was early on I mean this was like the first few weeks of his NBA career and I mean you think about him and like he's kind of been waiting a long time for this even though he's so young I think people in high school didn't really they didn't really know what to make of him and you know obviously the year at LSU is it was kind of a, a bust and he wasn't like I'm sure Andrew's skepticism was probably rooted largely in the fact that, you know, he didn't have an outside shot. So, you know, for him, I think though there's just been a long waiting game. And yeah, I think, I think it does speak to a little bit of humility, but I don't want to, I don't mean to say the guy's not, I mean, he's supremely confident. This is somebody who's never really failed. And, you know, when you think about, I wrote about him B last year, when you think about him, I mean, he's got one of these very typical stories of an international player where I don't think they really know how good they are. And when he was coming over, you know, he's in high school, it was Dakari Johnson would just have his way with him at practice, you know, every day. And they would kind of make fun of him um, back at his, I can't remember his high school. I think it was in Florida also. Um, And so it was totally different where like Embiid didn't know if he would be good and other people didn't know that he would be good. And then all of a sudden he kind of blossomed and figured it out and was able to use his size. Simmons is totally different. You know, he's always known he was good, and everybody's kind of known that for a long time. I mean, he's, you know, he's been kind of targeting the NBA forever, whereas Embiid, it all came about in this sort of serendipitous way where he went to a camp that Luke Mbamute happened to be holding, you know, back in Cameroon, I believe it was, and sort of discovered Embiid. So, you know, while his road to the NBA was very fortuitous, Simmons was almost preordained. I mean, it was another one of these father stories where you have, and it's funny how stories a little like Kyrie Irving's dad, you know, another guy who was playing professionally in Australia from America, obviously Brett Brown was the coach and the baby's kind of running around the locker room in Australia. Irving's family, of course, moved back to the United States. Um, but I think that the dad really sort of understood what his own limitations were and made sure that his son had none of those limitations. For sure. I mean, whether or not a guy like Simmons is like, quote unquote, over himself, he's definitely over the awestruck factor or the like, wow, I can't believe I'm here. I mean, that is just not there with him, like you're saying. I mean, I think that probably gets beat out of you when you're uh, in a gym with LeBron and getting, you know, one-on-one tutoring from him at a pretty early age. I mean, it's not, you know, once you get on that NBA stage, it's not this awestruck moment like we saw maybe for a guy like Donovan Mitchell the other night where he scores 40 points and he can't even string a sentence together because he's like, wow, I can't believe I just did that. Uh, I think you're right right with Simmons is that he certainly is living out uh, some pretty carefully crafted vision that has, you know, kind of dominated his life probably since uh, his early teen years documentary in high school crew is already following him around. He has, he had kind of a vision, you know, for what this was all going to go like, look like. And I think it's, you know, it's unfolding probably just the way he imagined. I, and I, it's funny. He's like another one of these guys who I think he likes being under the radar, but he also hates being forgotten about. And I think last year it was a lot of time at home. You know, he's kind of a, he's kind of a reclusive guy anyway. Um, as some of these young players are, you know, it's a ton of video games. It's a ton of just time on FaceTime and everything. And I think he was kind of watching the Lonzo ball phenomenon begin and everything was LeVar. And I, I, you know, I think he, he sort of felt for the first time, probably in a long time, like he wasn't getting that internet hype that he probably has had since he was what, 15, 16 years old. So you know, it's it's going to be an interesting team to follow. And I mean, I, I think that it probably benefited him a little bit, 
you know, obviously it doesn't benefit anyone when another guy's hurt, but, you know, ingratiating him, they've kind of now, they've done that, right? They have the, the Simmons and Bede dynamic down so that when Fultz comes back, you know, whenever that is, I think that probably helps them that they're not throwing in. I mean, do you feel that way, that they're not throwing in two, you know, high-talent rookies at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I'd send Fultz to a shoulder massage parlor for the rest of the season. I mean, they don't really need him. I think this is working this is working right now. I mean, if he wants to come back and his mind is right, his shoulder's good, then great. You know, you can fit in around these guys, but they've played so well, and the chemistry between those two has been so quick off the bat. Uh, I think we've already kind of taken that for granted. How often do you get two guys with basically a combined, you know, 30-something NBA games of experience coming in and being, I think, as you called them, like the most captivating young duo uh, since Westbrook and Durant? I mean, even Westbrook and Durant took longer than this uh, to build up, you know, playoff caliber chemistry uh, and potentially both those guys being all-stars this year in Philly. Uh, it's It's been one of the biggest stories of the season. One thing I wanted to, to go back... Uh, into your story about is this debate over his position because you traced it I think back into his high school days but also pretty recently in Philly where they were still kind of is he a point guard is he a power forward and I think that speaks to the Fultz question too because you know how often is Simmons going to be on the ball really determines Fultz's role I'll be honest I never saw the debate I always thought you build the whole show around Simmons I mean this guy's ball handling vision and power combination is so rare that you better keep him on the ball uh did you always see that that way or or was there something in your reporting that made you realize there was like a light switch moment for the the Sixers on that question I think there was a light switch moment I think that moment was was kind of when he got hurt because they re I, I I shouldn't say that. I mean, so when he went to camp originally, he was playing power forward. You know, he was in one of those kind of secondary ball handler roles. And I just think they felt like they didn't have the time. I mean, there's not somebody who grew up playing point guard all the time. I mean, he had the ball in his hands, and he was kind of a point forward. But even at LSU, I mean, they had another point guard. And so I think that they just felt like, hey, this is kind of the easier thing to do. For those first few days, he was power forward. Maybe they thought they'd kind of revisit it later. You know, a little bit like the Bucks did with Giannis, right? They started him at, they started him at power forward, and then, well, originally they just marooned him in the corner, but eventually they played him as a power forward and then kind of put him on the ball more um, going into, I guess it was last year, which would have been the first kind of, that was like the main point guard year, sort of first point guard year for Giannis, even though he wasn't defending point guards like Simmons. But anyway, after he got injured, it gave them time. I mean, it gave Brett Brown time to reconsider it, to kind of look back at it. And they treated that year as sort of, you know, I don't know how you could teach somebody how to play point guard just from sitting in an office, but they would sit in his office and they'd watch Magic and they'd watch LeBron and then they'd watch him and, you know, his old high school stuff and his college stuff. And I think Brown would take him through a, where's this guy in this situation? And, um, you know, where do you think this player, you know, what would be the right read here? And, you know, what's this signal mean? And so he kind of put him through these, these skull sessions and found that Simmons sort of sparked to it. Um, and they decided to roll with it. And it's, you know, I think you're right. I think looking back, and you, you might have had that foresight at the time, watching him when he was younger, that it was the natural thing to do. But it's it's still unusual. I mean, we're still talking about somebody who's 6'10". And they don't. it's not like they have another facilitator on the floor in the starting lineup. When they play with McConnell, they do. But what was amazing to me, at the time I was doing the story, I think they had the best assist percentage in the NBA. And he's the only 
I mean, he's the only playmaker in their starting lineup, really. Uh, and they're still moving the ball like that. So, you know, I was asking Reddick about him a little bit. And it's, it's not as though it's like playing with Chris Paul or anything. I mean, he's not, you know, he's not perfect yet. Um, and one thing the Sixers are really on him about doing is just throwing the simple pass. You know, he's, he's watched so much LeBron. He's great at that cross-court stuff. And he likes kind of, I think, riskier passes. I think he's one of this. He's part of this generation where the playmaking is as much fun as the scoring to them. Um, but what the Sixers kind of want him to do is actually more of the Lonzo stuff where he just, he just gets it, he kicks it ahead, quick three for Covington, quick three for Redick, um, and not feeling like it has to be, you know, really fancy or complicated all the time. No question. His ability to push and transition by himself too can kind of create some of those easy pass for, for bucket opportunities. And the kick ahead. He likes that better than kicking it ahead. He wants to hold the ball. Yeah, I, I can understand that. They've got a really interesting core because Embiid is essentially a defense unto himself. And I think Simmons is going to develop here in the next two or three years where he is really like an offensive system unto himself, a Harden, a LeBron type guy where you can have an efficient, you know, top 10 type offense, just keeping him on the court, keeping the ball in his hands uh, and going forward. And, you know, I think that would potentially be true with or without Embiid. I think that's sort of where his playmaking level is at. Um it's fascinating because everyone thought there was going to be a slow ramp up him uh, for him uh, because of the the no shot, like you mentioned. And you had a quote in there from Doc Rivers about how you can't just go under screens on him like you can on some guards because uh, he'll just kind of plow through you. And I think so far we haven't seen anyone really solve the Simmons, uh, you know, defensive questions yet because like LeBron, I mean, he'll just put his head down, get into the paint. Eventually your defense will collapse and he is smart enough and aware enough to find that open shooter. Uh, clearly though, the, the shot thing is going to hold him back if he wants to get on that like super all-time elite level. Uh, what can you tell us about what he's doing to kind of improve his shooting? Cause he barely ever shoots in games. I mean, he's clearly afraid uh, to take, you know, any kind of an outside shot. Is he working on it all? And then you kind of hinted at some of the ambidexterity. Is he shooting with the wrong hand type stuff in the story? It's weird watching him. I mean, because, you know, he'll take these kind of eight to 10 footers, right-handed and left-handed. And I mean, Kevin O'Connor from the, from the ringer, obviously this is his, <laughs> this is his pet cause, but he's right. I mean, the mechanics are cleaner from the right side. I don't trust my own eyes seeing that, but I'm, when you sit with, you know, people who would know, um, you know, and people even with the Sixers, I think everybody sort of sees uh, that mechanically he's he's better shooting right-handed. So I think that's a place that they might go. I don't think he's ready to think about that yet or talk about that yet, but I definitely think that could become, you know, a storyline in the summer. And listen, I think it's one way potentially to get around the confidence game and the mental game. I mean, I I remember doing a story with Tristan Thompson, who obviously is not, you know, is not a sniper by any means from with either hand, but he switched hands. Um, and it's another Rich Paul client. He switched hands, and I think you know when it does that, when you do that, I think it's sort of if you are having some issues with confidence and some mental issues, I think it can almost help you know, kind of get you back to zero with some of those. It's interesting between with Ball and Simmons, they both seem to be, you know, fighting these crises of confidence. I think Ball's, you know, a better shooter naturally than Simmons is. Um, but clearly, I think they're both, there are some mental obstacles that they're going to have to clear. Fultz also, uh, you know, it's not so different than like, these pitchers who, you know, struggle with command for a period of their career, or golfers probably with putting. 
Um, and I'm not really sure if this is, I'm not sure why that is. I mean, it may be that that's kind of the place where any anxiety or expectation where it manifests itself most, it would make sense that it was with your shot. It obviously wouldn't be with quickness or leaping ability. Um, so anyway, I think that there is a, Simmons is going to have a lot of work to do. That's going to be obviously what he devotes next summer to. He already talked about that, you know, when I was with him. Um, but I think it's going to take, it's going to take more time than that. You know, I did a story recently with Blake Griffin and it was, it was years. I mean, it's a long process that he's got time and he's obviously able to put his mark on the league and on the team without the shot, but that's going to be, you're right. That's going to be the thing that probably, you know, separates him from taking that next, that next big leap because defensively, I think the Sixers are already really excited about where he is, you know, and there were already people who were saying this guy could defend eventually on a Draymond Green level. I don't know if he's got that kind of, you know, drive inside of him um, that somebody like Green does, but clearly the, the tangibles are there to be a great defensive player. I mean, to me, the shot confusion from Simmons is the most fascinating part of his entire story, because like you've laid out, he was sort of destined to be one of these NBA stars, right? I mean, this wasn't Giannis where, uh, you know, it, it just burst through late in his life or uh, some other players who, yeah, exactly, where like they come to it late. And so you sort of expect, okay, they have to relearn some of the things they should have been learning, you know, when they were like two and three, four years old, and really starting the game. Simmons is sort of like, you know, kind of bred for this with a basketball playing father, unbelievable all-around skill package. Like you said, he could be an all-defensive player. He's going to be an all-NBA player before too long. And yet he has this glaring hole. I mean, it's like the ultimate Achilles heel. And we really haven't seen a situation quite like this that I can remember uh, in years. So that's definitely one to track. It's kind of like his arc is a little like, reminded me a little bit of Porzingis, where, yeah, he's international, but like Porzingis was geared. I mean, his brothers had wired him to do this, like practicing interviews when he was a kid. And I mean, they kind of knew that he was going to be, that he was the hope. And, you know, very Americanized, knew all the players. That's how Simmons is. It's funny how the international guys can kind of go, you know, one of two ways. Because it's funny looking back at Porzingis, like when I was doing that story and you know, I was thinking about teams passing on him and feeling like, you know, kind of getting trapped into that that stereotype of, oh, he saw he could be soft and, you know, another, you know, long Euro who, you know, won't be able to bang with the American guys. And, uh, you know, once you actually, you actually kind of figured out what his arc looked like, you realized he was, he was actually plenty geared for that, for that, just as much as a guy from the United States. Simmons is kind of similar in that way, um, where they were sort of destined for it. Whereas you're right, like Giannis is the complete opposite. And, you know, and I almost wonder if it's easier, if it's easier to make those corrections and stuff when you don't have sort of, I mean, he's gotten where he is with this left-handed shot. And so it's going to be, I think it's (laughs) difficult to do that with a guy taking number one overall, who's had that success, you know, with the Griffin story, that's what I was talking to his shooting coach, Bob Thayton. He's like, you're, you got, you're asking a guy who's made a lot of money, who's famous, who's a number one pick. You're asking him to break down, completely overhaul the most fundamental part of who a basketball player is. It's just how he shoots the ball. And so that takes, you know, that takes a certain kind of humility. And I don't think, you know, we can expect if, if Ball and Simmons are doing it at the same time, you know, maybe the two most hyped ball handling prospects we've seen in a while 
that'll be kind of an interesting thing to follow. No, it's amazing. Like, are you molding the clay? Or are you just kind of like smashing the statue and starting over? I mean, it, it's, I think it is a lot more difficult to try to unlearn habits that you've known for years and years uh, and you've relied on and you've had success with. I am willing to give uh, Lonzo a little bit more time with it. I think a lot of his issues shooting uh, have been mental. The reason why I say that is he often is too quick to pull the trigger. Like he trusts himself to shoot a little bit too much. And then when he's actually in the act of shooting, it seems like his confidence wavers. So to me, it's kind of coming out mentally in multiple ways. With Simmons, you know, frankly, I don't know if I've ever seen him hit a jump shot. You know what I mean? Like I'm exaggerating, but you go back all the way to what he was a huge high school prospect the first time I saw him uh, throughout LSU. I mean, he was so good at working around his weakness that it never really mattered. And he's still so good at it that he can be an all-star and all-NBA level player, much like Giannis uh, it was last year uh, without uh, you know a knockdown three-point shot. And the way the game has changed for a player like Simmons in terms of you know maximized spacing, having all this room to work, the, the focus on one-on-one play, uh, being able to exploit mismatches, and then his passing ability, like he is set as is. You know, he doesn't have to really get this shot to be a really good player, but uh, you know, one thing you're hinting at here in your story is, you know, there's kind of shades of LeBron, uh, you know, kind of as his mentor, potentially as the person he's aspiring to become. If he wants to get to that level, he has a long, long way to go and much further even than LeBron had to go. And and LeBron came in with questions about his shot, too. But I mean, you can't compare at all rookie LeBron to rookie Simmons in terms of their shooting ability. I mean, it, it's not even close. Um, so on that topic, though, with LeBron, you close on this just beautiful scene where LeBron and I think D-Wade are watching uh, Ben Simmons kind of just go up and down the court working out. And uh, LeBron says, you know, if I could do it all over again, I would. And, you know, maybe he's getting this vision of himself as a youngster, you know, watching Simmons. Uh, how did you get that anecdote? Uh, and uh, if, if you could tell us and what went through your mind as you were writing that, putting that together and, and kind of closing your piece uh, on that theme? Yeah, I mean, it was it was from people who were there and who were kind of watching that unfold. And, um, you know, I thought it was sort of, it's funny, I sent I sent all my stories to my dad to read before I actually sent them to the office. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say that, but he, uh, you know, he didn't really like it. He's like, well, of course he would do it all over again. He's one of the best players who ever lived. Why wouldn't he do it all over again? <laughs> and so I don't think he really got it, but like, it's what it's exactly what you said. It was more of a it's less a statement about LeBron than it is about Simmons. Just that he would even that he would even make LeBron think that way. That he would kind of evoke memories of himself as a young player. And I think when I see when I watch Simmons, I don't necessarily see young LeBron in him because I when I think of LeBron, I think of the force of just strength and power. And when I see Simmons, it's more of a and I don't know, I could be mistaken here, correct me if I'm wrong, but to me it looks, it's more like the length and agility. It, to, I think they're kind of very, they're different as far as you know, the way they get to the basket, but I guess the, the similarity is that they do get themselves to the rim and that they're probably, they're probably both at heart more magic than Michael. You know, they're both guys who they love to pass. They love the way it looks. Even some of the flourishes Simmons has with his passes, you know, I kept asking guys what you call this pass, like the one where you kind of back, like these guys like will backhand it from the hip. Nobody could give me a good, a good like name for what that pass is. Um, like there's no kind of, I don't know, a little title for it or anything. Um, but the one thing like I kept asking people about, you know, about him and what, 
like what he kind of called to mind, what other players, and Stauskas was the one who really like underlined the LeBron comparison, not because of how they look or even how they score or get to the basket, but just the vision that they have and the feel they have. So, you know, I didn't want to hammer the LeBron comparison too much because I think it's kind of silly, like when people do that, and this guy's going to be totally different than LeBron James. But I did, I did sort of enjoy the idea that he did come of age in LeBron's era, and he's one of the first players, one of the first probably stars who can say that, who really grew up you know, in the LeBron James era and I think was affected by the way he played, you know, just as I'm sure Michael, you know, Michael obviously spawned Kobe and, you know, when we watch him, you know, there are so many like little flourishes about Michael and the scoring mentality and I think Simmons' mentality to some degree, I'm sure it was just the way he was wired, but to some degree, I think LeBron helped underline it. So yeah, that you, that ending just kind of, I don't know, to me, it was sort of it sort of said it better than I could certainly say it in my own language. Yeah, and you didn't have to hammer the comparisons because you have LeBron kind of hinting at that twice throughout your story. And if, if LeBron's willing to say it and we know uh, sort of his place in the game and how much he reveres guys who came before him, I mean, if he's willing to kind of say like, hey, you have a shot to be as good as me, uh, I mean, that says more than any you know pundit or analyst could ever uh, say in, in drawing the comparison. The one kind of disclaimer LeBron put on it, though, was you, know, you can't skip steps. You have to do the work. And I think that is, yeah, that's that's the thing I think might get lost in some of this Simmons-LeBron talk is you can be built in the LeBron mold. You can be big, fast, strong, great with the ball in your hands, great vision. But if you're not doing all the stuff that LeBron has done in terms of gearing his entire life uh, around extending his career, taking care of his body, adding uh, skills, uh, just everything that he's done in terms of maximizing his uh, his God-given ability, you're never going to be the next LeBron, right? And I, I think that seemed like that was a message from LeBron to Simmons, right? And that's what's hard, I think, about some of these guys, these young guys, is like you can't, it's hard to tell. Like it's hard, you can never tell what's inside. It's like that's one, these guys, especially, I kept thinking about ball because of, yeah, they they sort of have some similarities. Ball and Simmons are both. It's this very placid exterior, right? You, it's hard to tell what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Like with LeBron, the drive is pretty obvious. You know, he makes it. He kind of tells you what, he, what he's thinking, what he's feeling. It's very clear. You know how how much fuel there is in there. With Simmons and Ball, it may all be there, but it's hard to really know. You know, you can't really tell from a conversation. You certainly can't tell from like their body language on the court. You know, so you know, who's going to do who's going to do the work on that shot? Because it's going to be painful work. It's going to be really. It's going to be hard. And I mean, you look you look at LeBron this year and the way he's shooting it. I mean, I remember I remember interviewing him once. Gosh, it was in Phoenix. I think it was. I think it was 12-13, and it was early in the season, and he was at 40% from three. He was with Miami. And I kind of said something like, ah, you're shooting 40% from three, and he sort of waved it off, said, I'm never going to – oh, that'll never hold up. I'll never shoot 40% <laughs> from three for a year. I'm not a good three-point shooter. And he was sort of, you know, grousing about it. Um, and, you know, maybe this is the – I mean, he's he looks now the way he looked then as far as the shooting. And, you know, you know there was – you know there was pain that went into that. Anybody who tinkers, there was that great Tom Haverstrow story last year about all the tinkering from the free throw line. Um, but to me, that was sort of, it was sort of a testament to him because it's like he's constantly searching. He's constantly looking for, you know, how can I get better? It's not this idea that I'm the best player in the world. I'm, I'm good with what I got, you know? And so what, whether that exists somewhere inside the basketball soul of Ben Simmons is yet to be known. 
I want to come back to LeBron and, and we'll switch gears here and talk some thunder too uh, in a minute. But I want to have one final question for you on Simmons. He's such he's such a fat. Yeah, we we do because this is a big theme. It's something that, that Adam Silver's talked about. I think it's something that's really hung over the NBA here for the last you know decade. It's the one and done idea. Uh, Simmons is a fascinating case study because you know he's basically coming out and essentially saying I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he, he basically he wasted a year at LSU, right? Um, yeah, last year was a better education yeah. for him than the college year. Yeah, that he says. So. Uh, did you get any sense like he would have done things any differently if he could have after going through that LSU experience? And then did his case study change your thinking at all in terms of what you think the NBA should do uh, on this one and done issue? Should they make it like you can come straight out of high school or you have to go for two years, the zero or two proposal? Should they say everybody has to go for two, which you know I'm pretty adamantly against that? Should they just say it's a free for all? Uh, I know they've tried to kind of build up the G League here as sort of a, a compromise. That really doesn't seem to have been, uh, you know, really that attractive for a player like on a Ben Simmons level. Should he have played overseas? Should he have just spent that year, uh, you know, doing what Luka Doncic is doing right now and dominating the EuroLeague? Uh, what did you think would have been best for Simmons? And then how would you remold the system? Probably that. Probably what you just said would have been best. He didn't express any regret. I mean, you have to remember, he was... He was in America by at 16, you know, and he was at Montverde, a powerhouse, and you know he wanted, I, you know, who knows what goes on behind the scenes of these recruitments, but he went to play for his godfather at LSU. He didn't express regret to it, but clearly there's element of regret. I mean, he kind of I think turns that more into just sort of blaming the NCAA and the system as a whole. But then in the next breath, he says. You know, he'll tell you that not everybody's ready and that he does worry that if there's no because this is really his cause. I mean, it wasn't just for the movie. He actually he kind of he kind of cares deeply about it. And it was probably where he was most what he was most animated talking about. He'd already talked about it a lot in detail. So I didn't I didn't write too much of it. But he, he I mean, I think he was kind of bemoaning the idea that a lot of players when they're in college, they see the hypocrisy of it. Then they get to the pros. They're making money. They're like, forget about it. You know, he's somebody who I think, uh, however this goes, will be kind of a good public face for it, um, an ambassador for any kind of change. But he admitted, I mean, in the next breath, he admitted that not everybody's ready for this, and you'll have guys who declare who aren't ready. And that's where the confidence comes from. He knew. I mean, he was so sure that he was ready to be a standout in the NBA on the day he signed with LSU that I think he viewed it. He viewed it as a waste of time probably before it even started um, and saw the hypocrisy in it early. And again, he's also an unusual case because he didn't grow up with the NCAA tournament. You know, he didn't, he didn't see the charm of, of that or of like the crazy <laughs> college crowds and everything. That held, that held no appeal to him. Whereas I think for some American players, yeah, they'd rather be in the NBA, but I think a lot of them can still appreciate, you know, March Madness and, you know, playing at Duke and all of these sorts of sites that you grow up with and, and become, I think, seen as part of the basketball experience. What the answer is, I don't know, Ben. I mean, do you think it should be a free-for-all? I, I lean towards that. I think especially maybe because of the political climate, it's like, come on, let's just let these guys do what they want to do. But I can understand from the NBA's perspective why – they would want that extra year. And these redshirt guys that you've mentioned, in some cases, that's really worked out pretty well. You know, and you can make a pretty strong argument that like for Fultz, if if it's mental at all, 
uh, it would be way better for him to just watch and learn for a year. You know, I, it's not unusual. It's not like, you know, banging on him as a player. Uh, it would, you know, that's just kind of a natural, you know, human development type of thing to get acclimated and, and feel comfortable and play your best. Um, at the same time, it's hard to deny, deny these guys the options. And especially when they're on that Simmons level where like when I saw him in high school, it's like he could have been on an NBA roster in high school and, and guys are coming along not every year on that level, uh, but regularly enough that it does seem kind of foolish and like a waste of everybody's time. And you're just worried that he's going to get injured or, or in his case, like his reputation took a hit because people were questioning all these things about his character, which really seemed unnecessary and harsh. Uh, and you know, it doesn't seem fair to him. And that to me seemed totally, uh, a byproduct of the system rather than him. You know what I mean? Like he wouldn't have had those same questions if he could have gone to play pro, uh, or if he could have just come straight to the NBA. Yeah. People who know him, I think somebody I talked to compared it to like, he looked like a guy at a dress rehearsal, like the lights, he could tell (laughs) the lights weren't on yet. And you know, that seems crazy. I know, but for somebody that focused on the NBA, that's where their head is. I think the free-for-all would be okay if the idea of sitting out a year or playing in the G League or you know using a year for development, if that was sort of destigmatized and if there wasn't this pressure to use rookies right away. Now, some of them obviously are going to be ready to go and you get them in there. Like you know, he, Donovan Mitchell didn't need the time in the G League. He didn't need to sit out a year. Um, and so many rookies this year are proving that they didn't. They really didn't need the time away. But I do think that that, you know, the teams are going to have to then. The onus is going to be on them, right, to not bow to public pressure and get rookies on the floor, to, you know, feel like it's okay to give them a year to just either watch or play in the G League or play really sparing minutes. And I think that's going to be tough to do because you take a guy in the first round, and the fan base is wondering where they are, and the owners wondering what they can do. Um, and I think that's going to, that would take a, a fair amount of discipline if you're drafting all these, because let, let's be honest, the NBA, they messed it up. I mean, when it was prep to pros, there were so many guys who were cautionary tales and I'm sure some of the responsibility for that fell on the teams. I think they'd be, they'd be more equipped this time around between the G league and what they know and that experience. But I don't know. I feel like they would have to really, <laughs> I mean, they would have to have structures in place um, that are more about development and less about, you know, showcasing a guy early on. I hear you. Yeah. I mean, the NBA teams are definitely trying to protect themselves from themselves. I think there, there's no doubt. Okay. Let's switch gears here and talk LeBron briefly. Now we go back a couple of years and he's telling you he's chasing the ghosts from Chicago and he's uh, calling up these Jordan comparisons earlier this season. You know, he goes off for 50 plus and he's, he's doing the mic turnarounds in the post and, uh, you know, kind of flashing back there. Then a couple of nights ago, the viral video, I'm sur- sure you saw go around everywhere where he's kind of palming the ball like Jordan in the United Center. Lee, I mean, you know, you're the kind of the Le- LeBron whisperer. I mean, is is he trying to get us to have this GOAT conversation all over again? Is he trying to rev that back up with all these on-court tributes to Jordan in the middle of live action, you know, as he's leading his team to this gigantic winning streak and sort of reversing all of that early season concern? Is, is he doing this on purpose? I have no idea, and I'm not a whisperer. I, I think uh, I wish I were. I think that he, I think that he looks for ways to kind of keep some juice going and some energy and make things interesting in another December of another NBA season. You know, sometimes I think he thinks. Sometimes I think he doesn't mind digging these holes to dig out of them. Um, you know, and I I don't know that for a fact. I just 
it's been so many games, it's been so many long seasons, and so I think sometimes he, I mean, clearly he's someone who, at some point, he went from, I think, being uncomfortable with all the lenses, the world's kind of lens trained on him, to not only being comfortable with it, but kind of craving it. And, you know, I go back to, like, I once asked him, I think it was after his, it was after his first championship, and it was crazy when he won. We may have talked about this before. I'm sorry, interrupt me if we have. But before that first championship, it was wild. Like in the heat locker room, all these cameras would be on him, you know, as he was just dressing or as he was just kind of at his locker. He'd be just sitting there um, just staring ahead at the TV or whatever, and there would be 30 cameras trained on him. And after he won his first championship, I kind of assumed that some of that would go away, and some of it did. And I remember asking him two days afterward, what's it going to be like, like not having that kind of attention all the time? And he sort of looked almost, um, I don't know, he looked like he might miss it <laughs> for a minute. Like, like he looked like he, he kind of, he didn't want it necessarily to go away. I think that in some ways it's 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 been part of his life for so long, that kind of, you know, everybody call eyes constantly on LeBron James that I think sometimes when you're in the kind of the mundane regular season, he'll do something to to bring it back a little bit. And it's, I think, part of how he keeps his edge through these regular seasons. Um, so, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily about Jordan as much as it is about doing something to entertain himself. For sure. Hey, when I saw the the news of the Kyrie trade request this summer and he gets traded, and it actually goes through and it starts to hit you like this guy essentially asked away from a LeBron team, right? And he had justified reasons for doing that. Yeah. Oh, so I was going to say, what was LeBron's response? And then I want you to to see if you agree. I mean, somewhere deep inside me, the the not analytical part, just the emotional part thinks there's no way LeBron is going to lose to Kyrie Celtics in this year's playoffs period. It's just impossible. It will not happen unless LeBron's you know in a hospital or something he will just find a way to make sure he wins that matchup. Uh, do you agree with that? And then how did he respond to that Kyrie thing? The way it's always phrased to me is like it, the little things I don't think bother him that much that, you know, the dancing at the wedding or, you know, mimicking him at the wedding and the little tweaks, the social media stuff. I mean, he's heard all of that. And then some, it kind of goes back to like the Murray space baby bottle and, you know, Aisha and the high road, low road. <laughs> I remember like talking to people after that and he's like, he's just heard so many of these digs. He's heard so much of this for so long that I think he gets over that stuff. I do think there was some real sting about the idea that he wasn't a good teammate. Like the idea that somebody wanted to leave playing with him, because that's actually been something he's taken massive pride in for so long. And I'm sure he's not, it's not always easy to play with him, but at the end of the day, I think guys like playing with him because he gets them a lot of open shots and he gets them to June. And those are like, at the, at the end of it all, I think he's, it's a rewarding experience playing with him because you're kind of put in a position to be your best self um, as far as winning and as far as getting clean looks. So for Irving to have left that, yeah, I think he came back with, you know, a little bit of edge because of that. But I also think there was sort of a, a cloud lifted. I mean, he's been playing on these and they've been obviously he's done it to himself these super teams and when you play with guys in their primes who are that talented and there's that many of them 
I think there are a lot of egos to satiate, and there are guys who still want to, you know, who are looking at their numbers and what they're accomplishing and what they're doing, and I think it can be exhausting. I think that between the Miami experience and the Cleveland experience, and again, it's, it's what you want. As a player, you want it because otherwise you have no shot. You have no shot at the Warriors. But I, I did believe, and I still do, that this is a, a really fun team for him and that this is a – and that this could be one of his more kind of enjoyable seasons. And I think there's a reason why he's shooting. Part of the reason he's shooting it so well is I think he's a little bit unburdened. It's, it's him. You know, he's out there. He doesn't need to worry so much about another, like a young star. And is he happy? And is he getting what he needs? And is Chris Bosh getting what he needs? And everything else has gone on for the past, you know, seven years. So um, as far as can they lose to Boston, I don't see it. I mean, between him and Isaiah and, I mean, all the emotion of a series like that, I just, no, it's hard for me to picture that without Hayward. I, I thought with Hayward it would have been, and it, look, it could still be a fight, but Le, Le, LeBron and Boston, he just, that, I don't know, I can't, I could never pick against them in that series. And I actually have kind of been higher on this Cavs team than probably others were. I know you've been high on them. You didn't, you didn't jump ship early on, um, I know, when Sharp was telling you to well we don't want to do the told you so's here that, that will hurt his feelings i know he listened so uh, it was it was looking a little dicey there there's no question for a couple of weeks but lebron has that ability to turn things around completely by himself uh, and he has done that he's he's gotten accustomed to these new lineup combinations the new faces around him pulled good things out of uh the role players and then again stylistically the way the game is going the more you spread it out, the more room he has to go one-on-one. He just bullies people, and there's not really a good answer for him outside of you know Golden State's combination with you know perimeter defense plus rim protection. I mean, there are not very many teams, and certainly to me, not Boston, who can kind of mimic that successful formula that's really worked for uh, the Warriors in the finals uh, two of the last three years. Hey, let's, uh, let's close on some quick Thunder talk here. Uh, another team that kind of started off choppy, and they don't have a LeBron to save them. Uh, they've, they've kind of righted the ship a little bit here lately, but you know, we're, we're recording this on a Friday and last night they lose to Brooklyn and Mexico city. And so, you know, a lot of the panic that's sort of been hovering over this team, uh, kind of comes back and, you know, everyone said, we'll give them 10 games. It's a bunch of new stars coming together, Westbrook, George and, and Mello. Then it was give it 15 games. Then it was give it 20 games. And, you know, at some point oh, it's either going to have to sort itself out or it's not. Uh, I'm just nervous that as good as their defense is, some of these offensive questions in terms of chemistry and fit, shot selection, uh, ball movement, uh, aren't going to go away with these group. And you did a, a long piece with Paul George. I actually, I think two pieces over the summer. What's your sense for how things are going for him specifically uh, in Oklahoma City? And what's your confidence level that they're going to be able to figure this out by like the trade deadline where, you know, Presti is always active, basically every single year doing something. Uh, just what's your overall confidence, just both for George specifically? It's two months, right? They're on the clock. They have two months. And it. I keep thinking they're going to turn it around and figure it out. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a horrible handicapper, but I picked this team to be second in the West. And I thought, like, defensively that they would be the team that could give the Warriors the most problems. And, I mean, clearly – Clearly, that's not the case, um, or or else they're going to have to find it soon because it is starting to feel like 
you know, anybody who was around that Laker team in 11-12, it was kind of like, okay, they're going to figure it out, they're going to figure it out, and they just never figured it out. And the difference is that team was really had tons of injuries. And this team's that hasn't been the problem. It's been clearly fit. I mean, I wonder I wonder if they hadn't gotten mellow, Ben, would we still be having the same conversation? Would it be would they have had the same issues, you think? Well, I've I've been pushing that one pretty hard. I think that Paul is just squeezed from both sides. You know, it's always hard to play with a guy who's as ball dominant as Westbrook. And then when you've got a guy who's gonna be high usage and just, you know, quick trigger like Mello, and you're trying to find your fit between those two guys, that's really tough, especially when you're accustomed to being, you know, the the alpha guy in Indiana your whole career. And uh, personally, I just kind of think Paul George, somewhere in his mind, still kind of views himself in that role. It doesn't always come out. He doesn't always put himself in takeover mode. But when you look at the kinds of shots he prefers, those are Kobe-type shots, right? I mean, those are sort of like alpha scorer-type shots. And you can have one guy like that on your team, but if you have two or three who are sort of being redundant in that same way, you're going to have very uh, inconsistent offense. Well, so they can't undo the mellow move, and I think it would be harder to trade mellow here if they want to try to shake it up in the short term. Uh, I guess from the Presti side of things, we've had some emailers say, hey, we kind of expect Presti to be the first one to realize that it's not working and to be proactive and try to get out in front of it. So that could mean a Paul George trade at the deadline. That could mean some other uh, tinkering to the rotation, uh, you know, adding other pieces. Uh, What do you think his attitude would be if this continues going forward uh, into the trade deadline? Well, I mean, they have Westbrook under contract, so at least that issue is taken care of. I really think and this is why the mellow move to me was always a little baffling is that, and I was, cause I was there the week they got George, the week he showed up and they were going to do everything. They were going to do everything they could to make this guy have the best experience. This was going to be like the Kevin Durant do over, right? They were giving Westbrook kind of another opportunity. They were giving themselves as an organization, another opportunity. And the minute you get mellow, it just seems to undermine all that, to undermine that effort to kind of, make him feel like Oklahoma city would be his home because like, just like you said, he was going to, it then became inevitable that individually, at least he was going to have to sacrifice even more um, than he would have just playing with Westbrook. And it also felt like a team where all the pieces fit to suddenly something that was a little bit more confusing. Listen, Presley doesn't want to lose another, he doesn't want to lose another star for nothing. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's something he's going to, he's going to have to think seriously about, but they were, they were really committed to this and they really believed in it. They believed that Paul George from tons of research that they'd done was essentially the best, the best kind of player that he had all the attributes of a player you would want to play. You would want to put next to Russell Westbrook, probably the best one outside of Kevin Durant that you'd put next to Westbrook. So for them to abandon it, yeah, they'll have to feel like they'll have to feel as if, it's hopeless that they'll make a run this season, that it's hopeless that they'll re-sign him. I think the one thing they have going for them is that the Lakers are still, and I know they won as we're doing this, they won last night in Philly. It was a great, you know, it was a great win for them. But Paul George still said he wanted to sign with a team where he can go and, and win a championship. And are the Lakers really that team? I mean, are we prepared to say that? Because to me, the Lakers are kind of, 
the specter over all of this, right? It's over the Cavs. It's over the Thunder. I mean, all these teams we talk about are so wildly interrelated. Could Paul George end up going to Cleveland? If so, what does that mean for LeBron? What does that mean for George and the Lakers and Lakers and LeBron? And, you know, with every game that Lonzo struggles, to me it sort of it has to open Paul George's mind a bit as far as destinations for next year. Clearly Oklahoma City, if they keep going this way, you can't say that they have like a realistic chance. I don't think George would want to roll this back again. Um, but you do it does make you wonder about Cleveland. Before, I felt like Cleveland – was probably like wanting Oklahoma City to succeed in order to maybe have a shot at Golden State or at least rough them up a little bit. Now, Cleveland's probably in a position where they're rooting against Oklahoma City for the possibility that George winds up there. It's just so wild to me how this stuff changes on the fly. Uh, it's pretty crazy. I'm glad you mentioned the thing about Oklahoma City and maybe they don't have a chance to win a title because remember, that was sort of their mentality coming into the season, right? Like, didn't George say, we feel like we can kind of be on that level? That's the hope. Um, and I think when you look at Paul George, one thing we can say about him in his in his defense he is doing his part. Defensively, I believe he still leads the league in steals and deflections. It's not him just gambling and being all over the place. I think if you look at him and Andre uh, Robertson, I'm pretty sure they have like one of the best two-man defensive rating combinations in the entire league. The defense has been solid, and he's been a huge reason why. So what this kind of sets up potentially for me in George's eyes is he can look at the Thunder and say, guys, I did my part. I tried to do what I could on offense. Uh, the pieces didn't really work. I busted my butt on defense. I did everything I possibly could, and we were no, nowhere near uh, a you know tier one team in the Western Conference. And I told you, and I told everybody before I came here that that's what I wanted to be. That doesn't really leave Presti much room to to wiggle. I mean, you can't really believe. Yeah, exactly. So if you're Presti, you're thinking, look, like if it's not working, I do have to you know, potentially pull a trigger here in February. Otherwise, he's going to leave in the summer for nothing. So. That it's absolutely one to watch. I would love to see Paul George go to Cleveland. I think for matchup purposes in the finals, it's the dream move that makes the finals that much better uh, against Golden State. You know, assuming they get healthy and stay healthy. Uh, so I would love that. Um, any final thoughts in terms of what you're seeing? I know you, you've been talking a lot about Lonzo here. Ben, you would take that risk if you're them. Yeah, I mean it's it's really tough. I mean, first of all, that Nets pick, you know, that is a wide range of where that could land at this point given how tight everything is. It really hasn't separated. So if that's like uh, you know, the 10th pick or the 9th pick instead of a, a top 5 pick, I would be less worried about it uh in terms of uh, the risk factor because uh, I think this draft really has five guys who are basically awesome and it would be really hard to to miss out on one of those guys for like the next 8 years if you're Cleveland. But if you're LeBron, uh, and we've been saying uh, on the podcast, Andrew and I, you know, we have all these different scenarios, San Antonio, Houston, LA, obviously. This Cleveland thing has been looking pretty good. I mean, when he's playing on this level, you you give him Paul George. If I'm LeBron, I'm thinking I'm going to the finals next year again and the year after that. Uh, and, you know, he could probably try to you know recruit Paul George to re-sign and, and the pieces are there. So uh, that was the trade they should have made with Kyrie, by the way. I think if they could go back and do the whole thing all over again, uh, early in the summer, don't you think they should have found a way to try to get Paul George uh, when they missed that opportunity with Indiana? No doubt. And I think they would have if that thing hadn't gone haywire with Gilbert and Griffin. I think that was the, the direction they were going. But I think the timing of Kyrie's trade request coupled with 
some of the other drama there scuttled that, but there were all sorts of there were all sorts of different deals going on that and all of them would have had Paul George coming back to some of them were three-way deals, but they all would have ended up with Paul George in Cleveland. And I I don't know that Paul George was necessarily like excited about going to Cleveland in terms of like that was his main destination. But if it's true that he wants to win a championship and that's his number one priority, I don't really see how he doesn't end up in some kind of package with LeBron, even though they're not, you know, I don't know that they necessarily have some incredible friendship, but when you look at like the free agents, if there's going to be a package of two guys going somewhere, it seems like it would be them. And their skills obviously seems complement each other. Shoot, I thought Westbrook and George would complement each other too. But um, no, I, I feel like it might be worth the gamble. I mean, I think it's the only guy probably who it's worth that kind of risk. Um, but you know, right now, I, if you're LeBron and you're going to leave there again, you know, you're not going to alienate necessarily like the hardcore basketball followers, the people listening to this. But I think that you'll still you're putting a lot on the line as far as casual fans and people who've probably kind of gone back into the LeBron James camp in the last few years. And if you're going to do that, I think you kind of, there has to be like sort of a sure thing, I would think, waiting on the other side. Like there would have to be a really appealing destination. And at this point, just looking at it, I, I don't really see what that destination is. I don't see the incentive right now for him to leave Cleveland. Yeah, I mean, there's a few that I could make arguments for, but let's just close on this. I mean, news breaks this week that, Le- no, well, you know, that's what I'm thinking deep down in my heart. And, and Houston, more Houston, more and more, I could really see that being an awesome fit too, but I don't want to sidetrack it with that. There was reports this week, uh, LeBron's bought another $20 million house here in LA. Uh, he wants to be neighbors with you and me. Uh Probably not on the same road, though, unfortunately. But <laughs> yeah, uh, what, do you make anything of, of that? I mean, should we read into that in terms of this package deal idea, um, or do you think that's uh, empty talk? No, I mean, rich people have a lot of houses, and I, no, I don't. I don't read anything into it. I, I, what I read into it more is just I. I do think I do think everybody's watching the Lakers, and I think that there's a close eye, and I have no knowledge of that, but I feel like every free agent who we hear associated with the Lakers, they have to be kind of seeing, checking out these young players and asking themselves, well, how good are they? You know, is Brandon Ingram the kind of person I could, you know, who could help you take out the Warriors? And look, he's made huge strides. Is Ball the kind of, what's Ball going to be? Is he going to be a top five point guard or is he going to be Ricky Rubio or who's he going to end up being? So I do think that, I think that matters more than buying a house in Brentwood. Awesome. We'll leave it there. Lee, thanks so much for the insight on Ben Simmons, LeBron James, the Thunder, everything else. Everyone check out Lee's work. You know where to find him on Twitter, uh, si.com slash NBA. And we'll talk soon, man. So Lee was great as always, guys. Go ahead and email us at openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Just a reminder, Andrew is back uh, later this week and we'll dig through all of your questions, comments, concerns, dream journal entries, and the like. And don't forget, five-star reviews on iTunes. Uh, Go ahead and uh, give us those reviews. We're trying to get to 10,000 by Christmas. It's only a couple weeks away. Uh, Help us out. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. 
Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. 